Hello and welcome to Tales from the Keltum. My name is Marcus and in this podcast we're going to explore the lives of rescued animals in human care and the people that care for them. For this first episode I interviewed Sean Cahoon, who is a veterinary technologist at the Vancouver Aquarium and the Marine Mammal Rescue Center. For this interview I asked Sean what her job was like, quizzed her about her sea otter biology knowledge and asked her dozens and dozens of audience questions. Explain what a veterinary technologist is, because that's your official title, right? It is, yeah. I'm a, I'm the senior veterinary technologist at the Vancouver Aquarium, and uh, I also help out at the rescue center in times of need. Um, so, veterinary technologist is uh, sort of like a, a nurse, um, but for animals. And so, we do a huge variety of things. Uh, we do X-rays, we do anesthesia, we do uh, lab work, we do sample processing. Um, uh, what else do we do? We do ultrasounds, set up for any procedures, uh, helping with surgeries, and then super boring things like inventory and finances uh, and stuff like that. So uh, it, it sort of encompasses a lot of different things. The only things that as veterinary technicians that we can't do is uh, prescribe, diagnose, and do surgeries. So pretty much anything else is well within the realm of our uh, our job title. So that is sort of almost like a vet, but not quite. <laughs> sort of minus about uh, seven years of school. And, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So we work directly under the supervision of veterinarians, um, direct <laughs> being, you know, via email or whatever, if our vet's super busy and can't make it to the rescue center all the time. So we do have to pre- be pretty independent um, and able to come up with ideas and, and things like that on our own. But yeah, we do work directly under the, the supervision of a vet. Okay. Um, sort of connected to that, that, there's been a question that was asked twice by two different people. They, they are very interested in, in getting to know uh, your day as a vet tech. What does your typical day look like? Okay, so I get this asked this question a lot, um, and my answer is always the same in that a typical day is that there is no such thing as a typical day. Um, so it's I can't even describe a typical day, but I can tell you some of the things that we do in in some days. Um, okay, give it so, a try. So, okay, so some of our days would consist of maybe like a fish procedure or checking the eye of a sea lion or um, observing one of the monkeys who's doing weird things <laughs> or uh, doing, you know, practice things with otters like poking bums just to get them used to having us around so that when it comes time for, um, for vaccines that they don't freak out having different people in the habitat with them. Right. But, uh, you know, other parts of my day are also super boring, like writing records and, like I said, doing finances and invoices and ordering and inventory and all that kind of stuff. Um but at any point, we could be called out to do anything. So there's been days where we've been in the middle of a sea lion procedure, and Dr. Marty goes, oh, there's a stranded dolphin on the West Coast. Go hop on a plane. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, see ya. <laughs> and then an hour later, I'm in Tofino. Um, so it's, 
honestly, I can't, I, there's no point in even trying to describe a typical day because there's no such thing. And then we do, we also do a lot of training stuff. So, um, this week we had a full day of Hazwapper training, which is, um, basically training that allows us to be able to respond to animals in the event of an oil spill. So, um, particularly sea otters, um, because it does impact their, um, their fur and their quality of life. They can't do a lot of things, uh, most things actually, if their fur is not in tip top shape. So we did, uh, we did an exercise on what it would look like to respond to 20 oiled sea otters on the, uh, the North coast of Vancouver Island. So is that a likely scenario? Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, there are otters there and, um, and you know, there's ships going through there all the time. There's actually, um, they're dealing with uh, a bit of an oil leakage situation right now from a ship that sunk, I think, in 1968. Mm-hmm. And j- just in the last kind of month or so uh, has started leaking oil out. So, and there was one um, otter seen in the area that they thought was oiled, but he was still diving and feeding and, and doing normal things. So they couldn't capture him. But, um but anyways, like, yeah, long story short, I never know what the day is going to look like when I head into the office in the morning. So it's kind of exciting. I like it, actually. So it's fair to say you don't know anything like a boring day that doesn't happen. Oh, you know, I mean, we certainly do have. Well, OK, so any day that Dr. Marty is in the office, it can't possibly be a boring day right? <laughs> for anybody that follows me on Instagram. I do put a lot of Dr. Marty stories on there because he is highly entertaining. And so I actually get the most work done when he's not in the office, surprisingly. <laughs> but, um, I mean, we do have our slower days for sure. But, uh, but yeah, I, I kind of have to live prepared for anything. Like, I've got gumboots and rain gear in my car. I've got, you know, stuff, kit rough stuff ready to go at any moment so I can just grab it and go if I need it. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Um. The next common question, I guess, um, is, well, we get this a lot. I should mention uh, we get this question probably a hundred times every month on Instagram and on, on TikTok. We have a lot of followers there. So every single time they see a person in a picture, uh, they always want to know, what is it that I need to do? Uh, what kind of school do I need to go to? Uh, what kind of qualification do I need to do the same things that these people are doing? And um, you, uh, I mentioned in, in the beginning, you're, you're part of the Marine Memorial Rescue Center team as well. Uh, and, and that's obviously what people are looking at. So what kind of uh, education do you need? How did you get into that job? Maybe you can tell us that story. Sure. I think it's uh, it might be a little bit different for everybody um, and depending on what country you live in and, and what the prerequisites and qualifications might be for a job like that. But I can go through my journey for sure. Um, I went to uh, back when we were called animal health technologists, which might be dating myself a little bit. I went to um, to university for animal health technology, um, which at that time was a two year diploma course. And when you finish that course, it's it's a very intensive two years. So when you finish that course, um, you are qualified to work with all different types of species. But the majority of of grads go into a small animal private practice. So, you know, a vet clinic that people would take their dogs and cats to. Um, And you do the same things there. You run anesthesia, you take x-rays, you set up for procedures, you do minor procedures. We used, like I did cat neuters all the time. We did dental profies. Um, and, uh, and then usually because it's such a a labor intensive job and, uh, 
a lot of people kind of burn out after a few years. And so there's a lot of different branches that you can go to. So you can be in pharmaceutical sales, you can be in research, you can be doing large animal field work. Um, but I, uh, when I first started working at the vet clinic that I went to after grad, I worked there with a friend of mine named Lindsay, who is actually the manager now of our Marine Mammal Rescue Center. So after I'd worked at the vet clinic for, I want to say it was like 11 or 12 years, um, I would always, I would always see photos of the cool animals that Lindsay got to work with and, you know, sea lions and them doing really amazing things. Um, and we joke about it that this was my job interview, but one day on Facebook, I commented on one of her photos, something <laughs> like, oh, your job looks really cool. You should hire me. Ha ha. And, uh, and she pretty much was like, well, you're hired. You start in a month. What size gumboots do you wear? And that was like it. Um, and so I got, I got really lucky and it, it very rarely happens that way because these jobs are kind of few and far between. Um, and so, uh, the easy part for me was working with mammals for the past 11, 12 years before that. There's a lot of things that are the same or relatable, um, you know, medications, procedures, anesthetics, um, basic medical conditions, that kind of thing. So it was a fairly easy transition that way. Um, if you are somebody who is wanting to get into marine mammal rehab or rescue work or any kind of wildlife work, uh, you would have to probably go the veterinary technologist or, or vet nurse in some countries um, route. But my my suggestion would be to start volunteering just any way that you can, just so that people kind of get to know you, get to know your face around there, you get to know how things work. Um, and, you know, coming from a place where we do hire new, new um, staff every year for the rescue season, um, if we know you and if we've worked with you before, it's a huge, um, it's a huge plus for being hired for the season because, you know, we know your personality, you know, what goes on there, you know, what we do, we know how you work. And, um, and so it's a really good way to get your foot in the door. So volunteering is huge, but you will need some kind of education for sure. <laughs> right. And volunteering might, might also be, um, a good way to, um, to get a better idea of what that job actually entails because as a volunteer, at least here at the Marine Mammal Rescue Center, you are around uh, a lot of veterinary technicians so you can actually watch what their day looks like, get a better idea um, to see whether that's yeah. even for you. Yeah, that's exactly right. And actually, I don't know if this is still the case, but back when I went to university a long time ago, um, one of the prerequisites before applying to the program was that you had spent 80 hours in a veterinary environment. So for most people, that means a vet clinic, uh, just observing and per specifically for that reason, so that you don't go into tech school and go, oh my God, this is absolutely not what I want to be doing with my life. Um, and then you've wasted everybody's time and a, and a place in the program. So it's definitely a good way to get an idea if this is something that you want to pursue as a career. Right. Um, Absolutely. Um, uh, I'm trying to uh, follow this up with a few more vet medicine questions. Uh, there have been, okay. Obviously, there are a ton of otter questions, but uh, I'm trying to yes. uh, look at the medical questions first, because that's a topic that uh, we haven't touched on uh, a lot uh, when we yeah. did those two podcasts in the past. Yeah, um, we've talked about otters a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I promise everybody listening, we're going to talk about otters. It can't be avoided. And I have a ton of otter questions and I won't even get through <laughs> a fraction of them. So um, okay. one of the non-otter questions, or maybe it's an otter question, who knows? Um, what is the most memorable surgery you've been involved in? Oh, you know what? It actually turns out it is an otter question because uh, the most <laughs> memorable surgery that I've been involved in was uh, with a rescued otter at the rescue center. That must have been in 20, oh, 2016, I think. Um, mm. And that was at the Murray Mammal Rescue Center before we had a, a beautiful, well-equipped hospital. And so any surgeries or procedures that we did were actually in... Um, basically a garden shed you know if you go into rona and get the big plastic garden shed that you're meant to store <laughs> shovels and things in that's where we did all of our surgeries it was very um, glamorous it was so glamorous some people couldn't even stand up straight in there because it was such a short little shed but uh so we actually ended up doing um a nephrectomy which is a kidney removal and a blood transfusion which i think was one of the first blood transfusions on a an adult male wild otter um in north america particularly like canada was what the first one for sure but i think monterey bay had done a couple before that um and we used uh one of our otters at the aquarium as one of our donor animals so we used elfin's blood so we took a a couple um hundred mils of blood from elfin and drove it over to the rescue center and ended up infusing or transfusing uh corky who was our rescued otter at that time uh corky did not up did not end up uh, surviving long after that. He was a pretty sick little guy. Uh, but that, that stands out of my mind. We started that surgery at about 9 PM and we had an internal medicine specialist from, um, a referral clinic in Seattle come and help us because of course, Dr. Marty was away at a conference. Um, and so he wasn't there. So all around, it was like a huge team effort, um, and a really, really interesting learning opportunity for us. And I, whenever I think of that, I'm always really proud of what we accomplished in that silly little shed. <laughs> yeah. Would you, would you say that uh, a lot of the work that you do, uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's a very unique as a veterinary technologist, uh, working on animals like sea otters, dolphins, uh, sea lions. That's, that's probably not the most common thing, uh, for people in your profession, mm -hmm. but w would you say that, um, the things that you're doing, uh, or some of those, uh, things, some of the procedures that you're doing, uh, is that, um, well, I don't want to say revolutionary, but uh, is, are there some breakthroughs? Is there <laughs> something that you're doing for the first time or that only few facilities in the world have ever done? Yeah, there have been a couple of those. Um, we actually did general anesthetic on one of our Pacific white-sided dolphin, dolphins uh, several years ago. That was in 2015. Um, and we had a board-certified anesthesiologist from the U.S. who was in the middle of it doing a study on dolphin anesthesia and had, had done a few on bottlenose dolphins, but had never done, I don't think he had ever done any on a Pacific white-sided dolphin before. Um, so that one kind of stands out as well. And our veterinary fellow at the time, Justin Rosenberg, actually um, published a, a scientific paper in one of the research journals Uh, because that was such a, a cool and interesting case. And everybody was like, what? General anesthesia on a dolphin? That never happens. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah. So there have been a couple of things like that. Um, the other thing that sticks out in my mind is the, the sea lion disentanglement program that we do. Um, and when we, the very first time we went out to disentangle, to sedate and disentangle wild sea lions, that was in October of 2013. Uh, and nobody had ever done that in Canada before. So that was really, really cool for us to be involved in that kind of thing. Um, but Dr. Marty's a pretty progressive guy. He's an old school in a lot of ways, but he, he 
is also progressive in a lot of ways and that he's he's um you know into trying new things and new ways to do things and if he can be the first one to do something and it's successful then he's pretty happy with that and so are we so yeah really cool uh, people following you on social media, and a lot of people do, <laughs> I know, because they talk about it <laughs> and repost your posts all the time once you post yes. something. Uh, you mentioned, I'm not sure if, you, if it was your account, but I think it was you, who mentioned uh, fish anesthesia in in the past. Um, mm -hmm. it, that's also something that isn't usually done, right? It sounds rather crazy. I can't even imagine how that works. Can you explain how that works? Why, why would you yeah. do it? And what makes it so special? <laughs> It's really funny because when you tell people that, that you anesthetize fish, they're like, what? How does that even work? Um, but yeah, so I was learning how to TikTok uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, I post a lot of marine mammal stuff. And people always have a hard time believing that we sedate and anesthetize fish. So here we go. We're going to do some fish anesthesia. Um, so the way that we anesthetize fish is um, we use a medication called uh, TMS or MS-222 or its full name is tricane methanosulfonate. Uh, and it's actually a powder that you mix with their, the tank water that the fish lives in, um, and it will actually sedate the fish. Uh, and so it's dosed out per liters of water that the animal is coming to you in. So if we have a smaller fish, the aquarist will often bring it in a smaller bucket. So uh, buckets, say, with 10 liters of water. And then we will dose our anesthetic based on, on what procedure we want to do. If we're doing something non-invasive like uh, ultrasound or x-rays or a blood draw, we'll use a lower dose, maybe 60 to 80 milligrams per liter. If we're doing something a little more intense, um, we've done, we've spayed fish before. So we've removed ovaries, we've removed eyeballs, um, things like that. Uh, then we'll use a higher dose. So we would use probably something like 100 milligrams per liter. Uh, and then some fish are just really um, kind of resistant to the anesthetic. So wolf eels come to mind in particular. You have to use a really high concentration for them. Um, and we also use the same drug for frogs. And uh, we use a super high concentration for frogs because it's, it's sort of just just absorbs through their um, their skin. So okay. it takes a while and it takes a lot, but yeah. Um, and then basically what you have to do for fish is um, oftentimes they will continue to breathe when they're under anesthesia, when they're in the water, but a lot of times they will stop breathing on their own because of the level of sedation that they're at. So we have to quote unquote breathe for them, which consists of um, a, a pump and a tube running water over their gills basically so we put a tube in their mouth it runs the water over their gills and it keeps them oxygenated so they stay alive <laughs> and it keeps them sedated because it's running that anesthetic water over their gills and so with that sedation we can do pretty much any procedure that we need to um they are out of water at this point and we're only running water over their gills and so we can do sort of sterile surgeries And then once you've completed whatever procedure you need to do, you have to recover the fish from anesthesia. And the way that we do that is just to put it back into its tank water without any anesthetic. And then once it's breathed that plain water for a few minutes, then it starts to wake up. So, yeah, so that's fish anesthesia. That was something that I had never done before I started working at the aquarium. Uh, we didn't really see exotics when I worked in practice. Some, some clinics do, but we didn't. Uh, so fish anesthesia, anesthesia was like a whole new thing for me. Um, it was a huge learning curve, but it's actually really exciting. I enjoy it now. It's pretty fun. Well, even just hearing you describe how that works uh, to me, is still a crazy idea <laughs> to anesthetize. Yeah, it is really, really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's such an interesting, such an interesting thing you do. And uh, one of the things I think 
you would never associate with with a medical procedure that you would do at at an aquarium, uh, an as, uh, an exercise, uh, a fish, and then actually do a procedure on it. But it's it's not the smallest uh, kind of animal you do procedures on, right? I, I remember there was a story about Marty doing something with uh, a seal sea snail. Oh, I don't remember that, but probably yeah. We've done we've done shell repairs on crabs. Um, We've done research projects with sea stars and sea urchins. Um, we do stuff with teensy little frogs. I posted a story a couple of months ago about a frog that we did eye surgery on, and he was teeny-weeny. So, yeah, fish aren't, aren't even the smallest things that we deal with, but certainly one of the most unique. Fish, fish and cetaceans, I think, were the biggest shock medically to me when I came to the aquarium. Because cetaceans are just in a category all of their own. Like, who has a blowhole? <laughs> right? <laughs> So that adds a whole new set of complications, but um, but yeah, fish anesthesia—it's it's quite a quite a thing. I'm trying to visualize any kind of procedure on those tiny tropical frogs that the aquarium has. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> They've gotten loose in our office before. Full disclosure: cards on the table. We have we have had frogs running rampant around our office before. <laughs> uh, of course, one question everybody wants to know now: Did the animal survive the procedure? Is the animal fine? Was that a success? Would- which one? The the frog and the eye procedure on the frog. Oh, he did. Yep. Yep. No, he was good. We did. Uh, we had to medicate him for a few days afterwards just to control any infection and uh, and inflammation. But yeah, he did just fine. It's amazing. It's always it's always beautiful to hear uh, that. You know, every zoo and aquarium, they always say they put uh, the health of their animals first and foremost. And uh, to hear that um, you do, you know, you do those expensive procedures on a tiny animal like a frog. And it's literally mm-hmm. like it's just a little bit bigger than my thumb, probably, or smaller mm-hmm. even. Yeah. Um, that's that's fascinating. Um, uh, just in between, because somebody asked who was asking the questions. <laughs> this is so funny. Um, I was so nervous, I forgot who I am. Uh, my name is Marcus. And... Uh, <laughs> Yes, I'm indeed GT82 on Discord and asking these questions. Oh, this is embarrassing. I'm going to cut this out if I use part of this for the podcast. <laughs> We're going to fix this in post. Um, there's one question, a recent question that came in uh, via Discord, by the way. Again, if uh, you're on Discord, you can ask questions. You can also try and ask them on um, YouTube or Twitch. But uh, I can already tell you I'm only barely following what's going on there so safer bet to go on discord and uh, i'm going to share the link on on youtube at least uh, in a moment so you can uh, join us there if you're not already there um one of the questions that came in via discord was uh, have you been injured on the job by the animals you know there's been some bites and scratches and things like that particularly at the rescue center um the seals there are they're angry and oftentimes they aren't feeling well and so the last thing that they want to be that they want is to be handled by people right so their um their instinct is just to try and bite us which is fine that's great it makes for a really good release candidate if they hate us but um you know everybody almost everybody that works at the rescue center during seal pup season gets um a bite or a scratch at some point or another and their teeth are really sharp too and it hurts um other than that has anybody oh i got bit by a turtle once at the aquarium he chomped my leg just a little the little pig nose turtle yeah no really Um, that one bit you yeah yeah he bit me um and then i've been injured doing i i tripped at the rescue center i was we came back from a rescue and i was running to help 
unload the van and I tripped over a footpath and knocked the wind out of myself. But uh, yeah, other than that, I think those are like the kind of the main things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's bad enough. Um, It caught caught on security camera too. And of course, Lindsay and Emily had to send it to me with their commentary over top. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Okay, this is funny. Um, I'm going to ask a few more uh, general questions before we go to all the other questions. And uh, I'm not sure how many of those I'm going to manage to ask, but I'm going to try my best. Uh, One of the questions uh, related more more generally to to the rescue center is uh, after the animals get healthy and are released back into the wild, do you get a chance to go to uh, see them off and say goodbye? Uh, You know, that it's that's a touch anthropomorphic, but short answer is yes. Um, Obviously, not every single animal Um, and a normal busy rescue season, we can rescue up to 200 seal pups in a a season. So it wouldn't be possible for us to make it to every single release. Um, But certainly the ones that kind of grow on you for one reason or another or um, the one off animals like uh you know archie last year or um we did uh we released a harbor porpoise a couple of years ago and some of the big ones like that i i love to be at because we put so much work and time and effort and that animal has come so far that it's just so awesome to see um we always kind of jokingly go you know bye buddy (laughs) (laughs) enjoy your time out in the ocean or whatever but killer whales Avoid killer whales, yeah, be smart about it. But, it, you know, it's the basis of our job is rescue, uh, rehabilitation, and release. And so it's it's a happy thing that they get to go back to the ocean. And um, and so, yeah, we like to keep it that way. Yeah, and the, the saying goodbye thing, uh, obviously that's more for the people. Uh, the animals, <laughs> exactly. some animals that we release <laughs> can't wait to get away from us. Yeah, they don't care. They're like, get me out of here. <laughs> I remember we have a lot of people asking about the release video for Mo, uh, who was a, a northern fur seal pup uh, or juvenile, actually. She was already a year mm-hmm. old, right? Mm. Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and um, were you at the release? No, I was not at Mo's release. Right, but um, that animal, uh, I think the whole release lasted 2.5 seconds or something. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's about right. I remember seeing the video. Our vet fellow, um, Megan Strobel, at the time took the video took a video and showed it to me and she was like it, it just was so fast like everybody was kind of like oh, okay see you later uh, I guess <laughs> we'll head back to the rescue center now <laughs> but that's how you want it to be right you don't you don't want them to to linger and and see people as a food source and and want to be around people you want them to to be like I can't stand you guys and take off like a shot so that's a good thing yeah, the animal running away from you basically is uh, is exactly what yeah. you want to see. That's it's a sign you've yeah. done everything right. Right. Okay. Um, two more questions, uh, MMR related. Um, there's one question. I think uh, it's it's very specific about one animal, but maybe you can answer that in in more general terms. Uh, it's uh, a question. Um, what happens when an uh, when we rescue an older animal that can be released or could be released in general? Um, uh, is are there uh, are we are we handling these animals any differently than 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 animals where we pretty much know from the beginning um, that um, that is probably going to be a non-releasable case? Right. Um, it it certainly depends on the animal. Um, 
you know, the bigger they get, the more careful we have to be. So things like sea lions that we rescue as adults, um, you know, the, the male California sea lions are easily over 300 kilograms or close to 700 pounds. So yeah, we got to be pretty careful with those guys. Um, Archie was a super gentle, calm guy. So he made our lives really easy. Uh, Ralphie, not so much. He hated us and he would kind of, um, you know, rush us if we tried to go into the, into the enclosure with him. But again, that's a good thing. Um, and that it makes for a good release candidate. Cause the last thing that you want is to have an animal in your care that becomes human seeking. Um, because once you put that animal back out into the wild, they actually would become a nuisance animal. So that would be the animal that would be, you know, up on a dock trying to climb into somebody's boat with them or walking towards people thinking, thinking that they have food or that kind of thing. So, um, on the other side of that, though, when you rescue an animal as an adult, you you worry less about imprinting or or them becoming habituated to people because they've already spent time out in the wild as an adult animal, so they kind of they kind of know and and get it what they're supposed to be doing out there. It would be something more uh, to worry about probably with a younger animal that would need more or a lot of intensive hands on care. Um, so an animal that you're bottle feeding, uh, that kind of thing that you're spending a lot of time with. Um, would be something that you would be a little bit more concerned about. Um, the, any of the animals that we've actually bottle fed have end up, ended up not being non-releasable. So the sea otters, for obvious reasons. Um, Bella Bella, we had to bottle feed her, and she was considered non-releasable, I think because she so many times had returned to the place that we rescued her from that they, that Department of Fisheries was like, I don't, you know, usually for, for most animals, it's a three strikes, you're out kind of thing. Uh, if they keep stranding then um, three times, then they're considered non-releasable. So, um, so yeah, so long story short, different animals are kind of handled differently. Uh, the adult ones, for the most part, you do have to be pretty careful with. Um, sea otters obviously could take off your leg, that kind of thing. So just the proper proper safety precautions. Um, herding boards are your friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I guess that that pretty much applies to any wild animal rescue, any place that deals with white, wild animals whatsoever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, probably also doesn't matter whether it's as small as a mouse or as big as a sea lion. They can all be dangerous in their own ways. Uh, my old, the old vet that I used to work with said, you know, the owners would often say, oh, she won't bite. And his answer was always, if they have teeth, they can bite. So... <laughs> <laughs> Even if it seems like the calmest, most uh, nicest animal, then you, you kind of still have to walk, keep your guard. All right. Um, well, I'm going to combine these two. Uh, there's one question. Do animals get shots like uh, rabies or for rabies against rabies uh, when they arrive? And then another question. Can the virus, and I, I assume they're referring to the coronavirus, get these animals sick? Okay. Uh, I'm going to answer it in two parts. Yep. First part of the question is vaccinations. Um, we don't necessarily vaccinate animals when they come in, and we don't actually vaccinate any of the animals at our rescue center. Um, we do vaccinate the animals that are on site at the aquarium that are a part of our healthy aquarium collection. Um, so the otters get vaccinated. They get rabies and distemper and West Nile virus. The penguins also get West Nile virus, as do the harbor seals. And then the pinnipeds, so the sea lions, fur seals, and harbor seals um, all get distemper and rabies as well. I think that's it. Um, 
And then as far as the coronavirus, I guess because it's such a new virus, we don't really know. Uh, we don't know if the animals um, can can get the virus from us. Certainly there have been cases of um, animals in other places contracting the virus. So I think there were some tigers or lions at a, um, a facility in the U.S. Uh, we know that minks can, can contract the virus. And um, sort of down that vein, um, sea otters are in the same family and so or a similar family. And so it's certainly a possibility that, that somebody could, um, could pass the virus to one of our otters. And so because we just don't know, that's why we do take the precautions and we always are wearing masks around our animals. Um, at the beginning of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, so I think it was, I think it was last summer, maybe spring, summer, um, <clears throat> we actually t- took the deep nasal swabs. If anybody has been tested for COVID, it's awful. Um, but we did some of those swabs on our, uh, a lot of our marine mammals actually, and sent them to a universe in the U S and I want to say it was UC Davis, but don't quote me on that. And they tested everybody for COVID. Um, and everybody was negative, thankfully, but we tested, um, fur seals, sea lions, otters, and I think we did harbor seals as well. So I think there was about 10 or 15 swabs that we sent out. Um, but yeah, long story short is long story short is that we don't actually know we think so but uh we're taking the precautions anyways right yeah i i mean there, there have been cases of uh, or at least in the reported in the media i'm not sure how, how true that is of uh, transfer to cats and dogs so um there's a reasonable assumption that it could transfer to other mammals as well right since yep, the, exactly. the origin of the virus is believed to be uh, an animal a mammal Yeah, and I think I read a study the other day that said uh, that sea otters have um, a, the receptor that um, the, that the virus binds to, and they have a really sensitive receptor. So the chances of them getting COVID nineteen over other animals, I think, is greater. Right. But again, we have a we have a pretty sort of closed family at the aquarium. Um, it's only essential people on site. Everybody wears masks. Uh, our otters don't come in contact with, you know, wild otters or any people outside of our aquarium bubble. And so uh, so we play it pretty, pretty safe with this virus. Yeah, and everybody watching the live stream, of course, uh, will see that everybody is wearing masks at all times. Um, so there, uh, any, any reasonable precaution that can be taken is being taken. And that's... Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, all right. Now I'm going to get to the otter questions. <laughs> I'm going quiz to you, quiz you first on your anatomy knowledge. Oh, gosh. So. Okay. Oh, dear. Um, Google sea otter anatomy on the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you study your sea otter anatomy before this? Uh, we're going to find out in a moment. No, uh, I think the questions are rather harmless. Um, some are rather funny. Um, one of those questions is, do otters have fingers? Uh, this person writes, I counted five uh, toe beans <laughs> on cat mice paw pad, <laughs> but it seems the paw is just in one piece without fingers. Now, you've done x-rays. Mm-hmm. You can answer that question. Yes, that question I can answer. I don't <laughs> need to Google it. <laughs> so their paw pad is all in one piece, but... Uh, underneath the paw pad and all of that fur, uh, they do actually have fingers. We we call them digits. Um, and most mammals have similar ones. So sea lions also have the digits, even though they have um, flippers. So if you x-ray those flippers, they do have digits inside there. 
Um, so to harbor seals, believe it or not, cetaceans do as well. Um, if you x-ray a cetacean's pectoral flippers, you will see the five digits in there. Um, so yes, I can confidently say sea otters do have fingers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm so glad we've addressed this question once and for all. Um, <laughs> um, there's... There's two questions about their senses. Um, one is, do otters have a strong sense of smell? Yes. <laughs> oh, I love this. I sh nah. Right? Yes or no questions. So, total, yeah, interviewer mistake. Do not ask yes or no questions. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, long, it's, it, it's a pretty short answer. Yes, they do have a, um, a pretty acute sense of smell. Anytime we are out you know, near the otter habitat, you'll see them at the doors and they sniff so loud um, and they sniff so intently. We used to, before COVID was a thing, um, some of the otters would love sniffing like coffee breath through the windows or like your hair, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, they're, they're super scent oriented. I'm not sure if there have been any olfactory uh, studies done with sea otters. Uh, we've done some with sea lions. Um, olfactory just means your sniffer basically. Um, so you would associate a specific smell with a specific object. I'm not sure if anyone has done that with otters yet, but uh, certainly they do have a pretty um, sensitive sense of smell. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I remember Elfin was one of the otters, or was probably the otter who was the most interested in, in all kinds of smells. And that was probably... Yeah, your, he was... He was Mr. Coffee Breath, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember it was pretty much a routine thing. Your first thing you did when you came to the aquarium yeah. uh, as one of the insiders who knew that, you walked over to Elfin and gave him something to smell. Uh, your, yeah, your coffee exactly. cup or your coffee breath uh, definitely yep. worked. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was just as enriching for the people doing this as it was uh, to Elfin himself. Um, Oh, definitely. The sound of them sniffing is so funny. And it and they always smell like clams. Like even if it's first thing in the morning, their breath <laughs> always smells like clams. <laughs> well, I guess if you're an otter, that is considered attractive. Yeah. Was the follow-up question about whiskers? Um, kind of, indirectly. There is one question. Um, the otters seem to be able to maneuver uh, around uh, each other pretty well at night. Do they have some ability to see in the dark or are they using other senses? I have to say that I don't know a lot about how well otters see in the dark, though I, I know that they do have really good vision, um, but they use other senses as well. So if you think of an otter diving down to the, the bottom of the ocean to pick up a clam or whatever, um, it's pretty dark down there. And so they're not just going to use light to see. Um, they use their their paws. So they're, they're extremely tactile and they can sense... Um, you know, the minutest little difference in texture um, with their paws to, to be able to tell if it's a food item or something that they want to eat. Um, and similarly, their whiskers are also really, really sensitive. So I read a study the other day that I think was done at Moat Marine Laboratory in the U.S. Right. Um, trying to discern just how sensitive the, the whiskers sensations were. And they determined by having otters touch different surfaces and then indicate which one was which, um, that with their whiskers and their whiskers alone, they could tell the difference within a half a millimeter of wow. what a, a texture or a surface was. Um, and not only that, they also can sense, um, 
I don't know what the word is really, but sort of like a tail stream. So like if something was swimming or moving in front of them, their whiskers can sense that in the water and allows them to chase or to, to forage for things underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, they sort of have an advantage over people in that they've got sort of that extra sense, right? <laughs> um, right. Yeah, they, their whiskers play a huge part in them being able to survive, basically. So they're not just decorative. They are not just decorative. <laughs> <laughs> Although they, they are a very endearing feature in, in, in well, all of them. They um, are. My favorite thing is when they kind of twitch their whiskers, when they're looking at you and their whiskers twitch towards you. And I don't know if that's like a them trying to like smell you or I, I'm not sure what that is, but uh, it's adorable. Yeah. Yeah, pe- people do definitely notice this on the live stream as well, mm-hmm. even when, yeah. when, they're, when they're dreaming and you can see their whiskers twitching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was, I'm trying to find this question. There was a question related to, um, <laughs> I don't know how you would call that. Um, you know, they do this thing with uh, with their pores sometimes, even when they're sleeping, uh, sometimes where it's also sort of twitching and sometimes they... Uh, they do this while they're awake, but they also sometimes do it while they're asleep. Um, it looks like air drumming uh, with yep. their little paws. Uh, somebody <laughs> asked what, what kind of behavior that is. <laughs> it's some kind of instinctual behavior. All of the things that they do like that, that's not something that we've taught them. That's just something that they all do, and it's its an instinctual thing. Um, we I don't, because we don't train a... air drumming? That is disappointing. I know, right? <laughs> Um, somebody, there was a cartoon, I don't know if it was one of the Taz talks. I can't, oh, I can't remember. But anyways, it was like, hey, Taz, what are you doing? Or what are you up to? And she was drumming on the glass. Like, I love to drum. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely something that they do. And I think it can kind of mean a variety of things. The trainers probably could tell you more exactly what it means, but we, we see it in, in times of excitement or frustration or when they're trying to bang open something or, um, you know, when they're sleeping or um, we saw it from one of our otters recovering from surgery. So we assumed from that that she was in some discomfort and upped her pain medication. So I think it's kind of a variety of, of meanings, but it's certainly a pretty endearing uh, behavior that they do. Right. Um... Yeah, if you haven't, if you're watching uh, our live stream on YouTube or Twitch, and you haven't seen that, um, keep an eye out for the, those kinds of behaviors, especially at night. Um, and by the way, it brings me back to the uh, vision uh, question. I, I remembered I wanted to add something um, uh, regarding their night vision. Uh, there have been studies uh, on whether these animals can, on whether sea otters uh, can see in the infrared spectrum. And the answer oh, to cool. that is no. <laughs> and that is why oh. we feel comfortable <laughs> uh, putting up uh, those um, very bright uh, infrared lights that we use for our night vision. So if you're watching at night and you can see the otters and it looks like we're shining a bright light at them, yes, we are. But that light is only uh, visible in the infrared spectrum. So we can't actually see it. If you were to stand right by the otter habitat, it would be pitch dark. You wouldn't see a thing. But uh, thanks to uh, a, a lens uh, that is uh, that doesn't have an infrared filter and therefore lets the infrared light through, uh, that becomes visible. But the otters can't see a thing in that spectrum. So they are completely, well, not really blind. We've just learned they use other senses. But... Um, they definitely can't see that bright light. So don't be alarmed if you see them at night lit up brightly. Uh, they can't see that completely harmless to them. Cool. Very cool. Um, 
<laughs> this is a nice question. Um, and a valid question, probably. Um, do the otters get fed more in the colder weather? Uh, I, I don't know if there's a straight answer to that. Uh, I would say probably yes, if they are seeming to be hungry at the end of their sessions or if their weight uh, has gone down at all. Um, the otters are pretty self-regulating um, in that they'll they'll kind of eat what they need to and then and then they're good. Um, so if any of the otters seem really, really hungry at the end of their sessions or if their weight uh, goes down at all, then the trainers would probably up their amounts a little bit. Um, but again, they're they're pretty self-regulating. So even if you do up the amount, sometimes they're like, nope, I'm good. <laughs> I'm not going to eat that. Uh, so it's it's kind of dependent. But yes, amounts do fluctuate when the when the temperature drops, for sure. Great. Um, another question, um, getting back to all those interesting behaviors. Uh, do sea otters wag their tails, uh, such as a dog, to show excitement? Um, or is their tail going between their flippers when they're scared or anything like that? Um, I, I think the sole purpose of their tail is for uh, when they're swimming. It's not necessarily to show emotion. I mean, like, so, like, cat mice tail is moving right now, but I don't think that's a voluntary emotion. I think it's like, it's because she's scratching and her butt's shaking a little bit. So they don't necessarily emote with their tails. It's, um, it's more of a purposeful um, thing for feeding and swimming and foraging and diving and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think we people watching them uh, show more emotion uh, uh, at, uh, at every twitch of their tail than, uh, than they intend to convey. Um, oh, I think we overanalyze every twitch of their tail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I know for a fact that a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I don't want to torture you with ID questions. There are so many questions. What are your what are your favorite tells to tell the animals apart? How do you tell the animals apart? Can you tell us a list <laughs> of all the distinguishing features for each otter? And um, what's the answer to that? Oh my gosh. Okay. The answer is really simple. They all look the same. <laughs> uh, they do all look very similar, especially at nighttime. But um, uh, I do have a hard time sometimes telling them apart, especially when there's like five or six in a pool. I'm like, oh, who are you? But okay, so I'll run through. Here's what I use. Uh, Katmai is easy because she has the blondest head. Joey is easy because he never stops yelling and he's the smallest. Um, Taz is pretty easy for me because I can still tell the size difference, um, between her and the others. Um, and she has a darker head. She has blonde cheeks, but she has a darker head than like the Kunik, um, Rialto Hardy guys. Um, and then Hardy, Rialto and Mac all look so similar to me. I have a really hard time telling them apart. Mac used to have one whisker that sort of curved up and that was his tell, but, um, but he doesn't have that anymore. I think that whisker fell out. And so a hard uh, Rialto, I can tell if I'm at the glass because he'll come over and he's the only one that kind of really squishes his face against the glass to play. Uh, Hardy has super blonde cheeks. And um, and then Mac and Kunik. Obviously, Mac's bigger than Kunik. But other than that, to me, they look exactly the same. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm even worse. Uh, maybe if I see a close-up of their faces looking straight at the camera, um, I might do a better mm -hmm. job. But from even slightly afar, it's it's an otter. I can tell Joey apart. Maybe yeah. Taz. The rest, yeah. they're all otters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They all look the same. <laughs> 
I've, I've done a couple of uh, guess the otter on my Instagram and it's, it, you know, everybody's like, it ranges from Joey all the way up to Katmai. So I'm not the only one that struggles with this. <laughs> there, there is a reason why once the lights are out and we're on night vision, we call them cat mice one, two, seven. Yeah, they're all cat mice. Hard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a good one. Does Joey ever meep uh, anymore? Uh, sometimes I read people describing his vocalizations as screams. Is that just due to his voice becoming mature uh, that his uh, vocalizations sound more hoarse? That's an interesting question. So basically, does he still meep? Is he still screaming? Yes. So uh, maybe there's some confusion between meep and screaming, but it's all the same. Um, it's just really loud vocalizing and it's classic sea otter pup. Rialto did the same thing when he was a pup. Um, you know, you drive into the park and you could hear him yelling at you from a mile away. Um, so yes, he does still vocalize. Um, what is he, eight months-ish now? I would expect that he would probably stop vocalizing pretty soon um but he he was also raised as a really spoiled baby so it, his vocals could go past a little bit past what is typical for one of our sea otter pups but uh yes short answer he definitely does vocalize um yeah i, I do you think joey was spoiled more than the other animals if that is that really a thing because i've seen i don't know i remember hardy i think he was also spoiled a lot Hardy was less spoiled than Rialto and Joey. Okay. From my experience, anyways. <laughs> okay, well, I've seen all these Joey's animals in your arms, um, <laughs> still feeding them the bottles, so um, they, they all look sp spoiled to me. But Yeah, I mean, I don't have to deal with them once they get past the, <laughs> the sick baby phase, so that's somebody else's problem. <laughs> Sorry, KP, but uh, yeah, I'm going to spoil the crap out of those otters for sure. Once they become a problem, you just hand them over. That's that's a good thing yep. about doing primarily yep. the rescue part. Exactly. Love my job. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that aspect. Um, uh, there's a question about grooming. Um, it just seems that all of the Venacro otters uh, groom each other, not just their own fur. Is that a behavior that would happen in the wild? Or is that uh, usually just mother's grooming the babies what's going on with all the grooming <laughs> there's a lot of grooming that goes on we've actually had guests um that have come to the aquarium concerned because the otters are grooming so much not realizing that it's a, a normal thing that they spend 30 percent of their day grooming but um to be honest the otters that i've seen in the wild i haven't seen a big raft of otters before i've seen maybe one two three otters um, it's not something that I've seen in the wild, though I'm fairly sure that it does happen. It's not something that we've taught our otters to do with grooming each other, but, um, but because they are so tactile, they're such touchy animals that it's really not surprising that, you know, they reach out and touch their friend and go, well, I'm just going to groom while I'm here or that, or maybe they don't know that it's not their fur. I don't know. <laughs> their fur is so thick. Maybe they can't tell it's somebody else's fur. <laughs> That would be tragic. <laughs> right? I just spent half an hour grooming and it wasn't even my fur. <laughs> now I can't get started all over again. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that we teach them, but uh, it's certainly enjoyable to watch. And that's it for today. Thanks again, Sean, for being my first guest on this very first episode of Tales from the Kelpdom. 
Next time, I'm going to chat with Rachel, who's a marine mammal trainer, and that's a job that comes with its very own challenges. 